You're listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes, where you'll hear real stories of the journey to modern manhood told by the men who lived them. Raw, real, and 100% unapologetic. And now, here is your host, Eric Rogel. Hey, this is Eric Rogel, and thanks for joining us on Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes. This is where each week you'll hear real stories of the journey to modern manhood told by the men who live them. This is where you'll hear real men stepping up to help and inspire other men to show us the path as was done for centuries in so many cultures. We're about celebrating great men, great role models we can learn from. And that doesn't mean these men always had to be perfect. It doesn't mean they started down the right path. The greatest lessons learned can come from our biggest failures because it's what you do after you fail, what you learn from your mistakes, and how you apply those lessons to your life going forward that makes all the difference. We're not about shying away from difficulties. We're not about looking for the easy way out or giving up, whether it be giving up on ourselves or on others. But we are about taking on challenges and facing them head on embracing the pressure, embracing the competition and the possibility of failure and having the courage to do it anyway. We're not about victimhood, blaming others, making others wrong or tearing them down, either as an excuse for a situation we're in or to make ourselves feel better. We are about taking ownership for our actions, for having the self-honesty to admit when we're wrong, when we've made mistakes and to own up to them. And we're not about getting ahead at the expense of others or letting others fail. We're about having integrity and being committed to seeing others succeed, to see them be better men, even if doing that includes being brutally honest and delivering hard truths. We owe it to ourselves, guys. We owe it to each other, to all men, because to fail one of us is to fail all of us. And that's why it's so important to keep challenging ourselves and to keep challenging each other and to hold each other accountable. It's our duty to call each other out when it's necessary, even if the truth is painful, if it's painful to deliver and it's painful for the other guy to hear, because not calling them out can make things worse and keep them on the wrong path longer. And that's exactly what happened to today's guest. An incredible amount of pressure to stay ahead in school had him turning to drugs at a young age to keep up with the workload. Underlying depression and anxiety that went undiagnosed for years led him to start using alcohol just to get through the day. There were blackouts, accidents, injuries, arrests, but adults in his life, parents, teachers, coaches, all looked the other way. This was either out of denial or just not wanting to take responsibility, not step on anybody's toes. So his substance abuse continued, and it got worse. After several stints in rehab, including one that ultimately treated his root issues, and after his father had the courage to step up and both face some hard truths and deliver some hard truths, he got clean. And has since made helping teens and young adults conquer their mental health issues, eating disorders, and substance abuse issues his mission and purpose. His name is Jameson Monroe, and he is the founder of Newport Academy. It's a string of revolutionary treatment centers that focus on treating the core underlying issues, never telling people there that they are broken or bad, and not just putting band-aids on the problems and sending them on home. Jameson is a prominent voice in the field of adolescent mental health, and he's an expert in the field of teen treatment and holistic learning. He has appeared on CNN, Fox, ABC, and other major networks, and he's even testified before England's parliament on the subject of teen prescription drug abuse. In 2014, he received the Freedom Institute's Mona Mansell Award for his impact on the recovery field and community. And he was a producer of the critically acclaimed documentary film Behind the Orange Curtain, which shed light on the prescription drug abuse epidemic in the U.S., I wanted to understand how Jameson got involved in drugs so early in his life. I wanted to know what drove him there. So I asked if his parents had ever had issues with drugs or alcohol themselves, or if there was trouble at home. My parents had marital trouble since the beginning. My dad threw himself into work 
and and not only just because of that, but that's just because of the way he was raised. And if you go back a little bit further, my dad's dad grew up dirt poor um, on a farm in Arkansas during the Great Depression. You know, literally didn't get his first pair of shoes till he was like eight years old. And, you know, through sheer just hard work and determination, you know, he made something of himself in, 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 in this world, right? Um, from, a, from a business success per, per perspective and, you know, retired as chairman of, a, of an oil services company. Um, and so that kind of, I guess you say, kind of all or nothing or hard work and dedication was passed on to my dad and, um, and, and he put that into effect. So to many positive um, outcomes, but also, I would argue, at the detriment of a, of a peaceful family life. So when I say born into something that was unstable, is that my dad worked 70 hours a week, um, you know, traveled a lot, and he would admit was a relatively unhappy person, um, you know, and if you look at it, he had no balance in his life. He was relatively absent. I mean, I do have some memories of things that we did as, as when I was younger and a kid, but I also have a lot of memories of, of him, you know, yelling and screaming, uh, you know, and so he was, uh, he did not channel his frustrations, anger, and like I said, what, what came to be his personal unhappiness very well, he took it out on, on everybody around him. And my mother got the brunt of that. And so that's what I mean when, when unstable is that we, you know, our parents did not have a strong foundation. Um, there was a lot of yelling and screaming mainly directed at my mother, not so much from my mother. She's much more passive and my father's much more vocal. Then you had two boys in the house and two very energetic boys, uh, I guess you could say. Very competitive, competitive spirit, which led to a lot of a lot of altercations, you know, for many, many, many years. But so that's kind of that's kind of the, the environment that I grew up in. Jameson's mom doted on her two boys giving them lots of attention, making sure they got to school on time, even staying up late doing homework and studying with him. But attention from his father was based almost entirely on performance. My father, that's the thing, is that, and I, that multi-generational kind of attitude was, was that, you know, it was very competitive and you worked hard. The, the attention that I got and praise that I got from my father was really all geared towards either academics or athletics. How many points did you score and what grades did you get on your test? You know, and if you perform well, then I will praise you and you will be my boy, my man. But, you know, if you don't, then it's like kind of what's wrong with you. And I come to find out later on that my that was exactly the way my dad was raised. And, you know, he never went through any sort of therapy or counseling or anything like that until later on in life. And so that was subconsciously passed on to me that it's like, you know, you always have to be getting better grades, scoring more points, playing better training more, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then the, the praise that I got was, was through performance. There was never, never any discussion about feelings, uh, you know, or emotions, you know, uh, sadness, um, or, or anything like that. There was never any space for that, you know. Right. It seems like everything and, and what I'm feeling is, you know, coming from your grandfather when he, you know, self-made, came from nothing. It was about how much money he made, how successful he was, that's passed on to your father. So it's a very scoreboard related relationship, right? Everything's about points on the board, whatever those points may be, grades, money, points, that kind of stuff. That's, you know, my father was very much that way himself too. It was all about, well, if you did, if you made a lot of money, you obviously were successful, regardless of what that meant, how you did it. It was all just the points on the board. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. I like that. The scoreboard mentality. Yeah. 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 It's emotional scoreboard. Pressure to perform, to excel in a highly competitive school, to put points on the board to get praise from his father, led Jameson to look for ways to get an edge. And he would learn from classmates that certain drugs could give him that edge. The never enough leads to a feeling of less than, right? Um, and you know, there's never enough points on the board. Right. And so, um, there's someone always better than you, you know, whether they're better at sports, they have more money, they're better looking, whatever, you know what I mean? They have a bigger house, whatever. There's always something, someone better. It's, it's never enough. And so in that mentality, and so that, that led to, um, looking back now, you know, anxiety and depression, um, you know, probably starting, you know, in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, you know, and, and going through middle school. 
And so I ended up graduating number one in my class in my kind of junior high prep, junior prep school. And then I went to um, one of the top private schools in the state of Texas. Everyone's working their tails off. And so I'm in this freshman biology class, which funny enough, ended up being the same textbook I had in my freshman year of college for biology. Um, So that just gives you an idea of like, we're taking, we're using a college textbook in our freshman, you know, when we're 14 years old. I had like a D in the class, I think, you know, I just wasn't, I was also playing sports. It was a new school. There was a lot of stuff going on in my life. My uh, exceptional student going from the best grades, the best everything. Now you're pulling D's. Yeah, exactly. So, so, you know, kind of my parents are kind of thinking about this. There's some talk about it, obviously, you know, my lab partner, a guy in my class, um, you know, he was taking this thing called Adderall and then kind of, you know, Ritalin was out and about and interesting enough, uh, Adderall had actually come out kind of the summer before that, which is, which is fascinating now that, now that we know, kind of look back at the history. And so, you know, probably near the end of that kind of first semester of, of high school, why do you have a D, you know, or a C or whatever it was, you know, why can't you keep up? You know, it's like, well, I think I have ADD, you know, it's very, very starting to be a very common diagnosis back in the late nineties, right? Mid nineties. And interesting, interestingly enough, if you go back and look at a lot of the advertisements in, you know, parenting home time magazine, you know, all the, all the major publications of the day, you know, there's very aggressive advertising towards like moms, you know, like, you know, with pictures of a kid, you know, with bad grades and acting out and then a picture of the perfect pupil, you know, because they've taken Adderall or Ritalin, you know what I mean? Not only did he now have a way to keep up, a way to get his grades back up and compete, it was a way that was endorsed by doctors. All he had to do now was convince a doctor he had ADD. Yeah, it was very much in the zeitgeist, right? Um, so confluence of of these factors, um, you know, my parents like, oh, well, maybe that is the answer. So they take me to see a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist and, you know, he, he puts me in front of a computer. Or I have to push some buttons and, and, you know, I wanted to do better. And so, and I, and I thought to myself that these pills would help me do better. And so when I went into that assessment, I thought to myself, I remember this, I was like, well, what would someone with attention deficit disorder, how would they act? <laughs> so I was like, well, well, research before on what, you know, ADD was all about. And, and- not necessarily. I mean, it's, kind of self-explanatory right I mean the name of the issue is self-explanatory in itself and so I just and hyperactive and you can go from there yeah exactly so you know you're you're kind of bumping your leg up and down and you know and then literally sits me in front of a computer and it's like push this button every time something flashes on the screen and then he walks out the door he's got a bookshelf there to the left and I'm just like okay I push it a few times and then I'm like okay well I'm not going to pay attention I'm going to read some of the book titles over here and push it sometimes and not others and I couldn't fail miserably, but I just had to do bad enough to get a diagnosis. Sure enough, your son has ADD or ADHD, and you know there's a great new drug called Adderall. It works so well, and so I walked out of there with an Adderall prescription. Now, did I have ADD or not? Who knows? ADD can be situational, um, similar to kind of like depression. Um, it can also be a belief too, right? Like if you believe you have ADD or ADHD, you're going to perform in that way, right? Because that just becomes a belief of yours that this is – what I have. This is what I have. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, the, the power of the self-belief is, is huge. There's also all the environmental factors, such as we talked about my home life, the pressure, the lack of stability, you know, arguably probably a lack of sleep and nutrition, right? McDonald's was probably my favorite food back then. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of factors that go into concentration. And so, and then the fact that I just totally faked the test too. I asked Jameson if the Adderall helped his performance if it gave him the edge he was looking for. Oh yeah, 100%, 100%. It's, it's helping me stay up longer, you know, wake up easier. You know, it's a, it's a performance enhancing drug. And these so days- So what was the feel around using it at that point? Like it was okay, just, hey, a doctor gave me this, everything's cool. hundred percent, yeah, exactly. And, and, and so many other kids were taking it too. It gave me a lot of energy. Um, you know, I was like, you know, I was, I was hyper-focused. And, you know, felt like I was hyper-focused and getting stuff done. So then kind of the next year, you know, found alcohol and that, that helped a lot with the anxiety, it really helped calm, calm the nerves. And that kind of became a go-to, um, you know, so much so that 
you know, the last day of my sophomore year of high school, buddy of mine and I, you know, left and went out and, and drank during the day, um, in the morning, actually. This is the start of Jameson's self-medicating. Since his underlying issue was crushing anxiety and depression, alcohol helped him feel calm. And since alcohol was easy to get, even at the age of 16, his drinking increased so much, teachers took notice and he was thrown out of school. But no one stepped forward to help him, to look at why he was drinking. Luckily, I was in relatively good standing up until that point. And, you know, the, the, the dean, you know, offered to write a letter of recommendation to any school that I wanted to go to. And I just ended up going to, you know, a sister school down the street, if you will. But it was, it, it was, it was definitely a, a low point at that point in time. What's fascinating, though, is that at no point in time did anyone say, like, why are you doing this? Are you okay? Maybe you should see a therapist. This is not normal behavior. Uh, <laughs> so why, why do you think that was? I mean, that is fascinating. Why would they just say, hey, listen, we have these, these young teenage students who are, you know, being prescribed pretty powerful drugs. I mean, you know, Adderall is a pretty powerful drug and then mixing it with alcohol. And there's no like, hey, we need to really look deeply at what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, I think that from from my family's perspective, um, it was kind of damage control. You know, oh shit, you've been kicked out of school. Um, reputational thing at that point. They were reputational thing, um, a career, you know, a career path thing. You know, we got to get you into the next school so that your resume is is still intact. You know, luckily, you know, the school that asked us not to return, you know, wasn't going to put any black mark on our resume or anything. It was. It was the last day of school, so they, they gave us, you know, like all B's on our finals, which was probably better than I was going to get anyways, um, and because uh, I would have been hungover. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 they were very accommodating in that regard. And so it's kind of like damage control, reputation control, you know, versus versus what was the core issue? What's the And, and that's, that's probably because they had to look at themselves, you know what I mean? Um, as we see so much with working with, you know, families today and the work that, that we do at Newport Academy, it's like, you know, it's, it's hard to, when you peel back that curtain, you got to go, you got to go back pretty far. Um, and that, that includes, you know, not just the, the teenager, but in, in the parents showing up and doing the work themselves. Sure. And that takes, so that takes a lot of courage too, right? I mean, you know, that, that's on the parents part, a lot of courage, a lot of raw honesty to come in and say, Hey, you know, <laughs> I was a part of this. This is not just something that my kid is going through. What's my ownership in this? Yeah. Yeah. And, and even the first step may not even be that insightful. You know what I mean? It, it may just be, you know, my kid needs help. I want you to help. You know what I mean? Giving that power to the third party um, can also be a big step as well. You know. By his senior year of high school, Jameson's drug use spirals out of control. In addition to the Adderall and alcohol, he has now added pot, Valium, Percocet, Hydrocodone, and a host of other pills. And he rationalizes that this is okay because these are all drugs a doctor would prescribe. What's, what's fascinating is that, and looking back now, and also looking at all the teenagers that I've ever talked to or worked with, um, and looking at all the research and the data, is that there's something there's something called perceived harmfulness, right? And so, you know, the, if you're already taking a very potent prescription drug, you know, the perceived harmfulness of another potent prescription drug is, is relatively zero. You know what I mean? Because it's just, oh. they, they come from a doctor, they're made by a major pharmaceutical company, you know. Right, everyone, I'm okay on this one, I'm taking this one, this one's fine. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm okay with that one, why not? The, exactly, what's the difference, right? Um, yeah. You know, and so um, they came from, you know, someone's medicine cabinet <laughs> and they seem to be okay. Um, and so what's the difference? And so that's when the pills really started in earnest. I started blacking out from alcohol my sophomore year of high school, you know, and, and that only got worse through my junior and senior year. And then when you added on things like Valium and uh, downers and whatnot, um, it only got worse. I don't know. Xanax came in there at some point in time. I don't know if that was then or in college or when Xanax you know, started to proliferate, but anyways, so um, you were drinking, you know, and drinking in school, you weren't just having a couple of, of beers, right? I mean, you were drinking the blackout. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so, so that, that kind of gets to my underlying, you know, people make all my underlying mental health issues, you know, like I had major depression and major anxiety and I had no way 
to deal with with those issues. One is that, like I mentioned, there was no space to talk about those in my household. And secondly, you know, well, I didn't have the insight to kind of identify that and ask for help, but there were no adults either that were like, you know, <laughs> this kid needs therapy. You know what I mean? This kid needs yeah, to talk man, to a professional. It seems like anywhere along the line, it could have been, you know, parents, teachers, parents of friends of yours that noticed this and said, hey, look, let's, let's grab this, take this and, um, you know, get a hold of this situation and, and do something. I, I agree, man. I agree. And so, was you know, that's denial? why. What do you think it was? Was it denial? Was it not my responsibility? I don't want to get involved. Was it a combination? It was definitely a combination. Um, you know, I think denial was pretty strong within the family. I mean, it had to be looking at the ways that sometimes I would come home and be, and act and the things that I would say and do to my parents. And then probably within, you know, the community, it was probably, yeah, you know, not, you know, I don't want to step my toe in someone else's business kind of stuff. You know what I mean? But yeah, and then that's where like, in all the talks that I do now, when I talk to, you know, educators or families or anything like that, it's like, you know, I mean, it had to get really bad for me until someone said, hey, dude, you need to go talk to a professional. And I had to get really, really, really bad, you know, as a teenager, driving blacked out, you know, you know, taking so many pharmaceuticals that who knows if I if I would have or could have, you know, not woken up, you know, all that kind of stuff. And and that's where like, I, now I, I plead with folks, you know, it, it, it's no big deal to go talk to a therapist, you know what I mean? And, and to have some sort of assessment or seek a professional. Um, I think luckily, like I'm talking about back in the 90s, luckily, you know, we're 20 plus years past when I was in high school. And so the stigma has been lifted somewhat in most communities. Um, you know, in others, I can tell you the stigma is still rampant. But I think we're starting to see a, a softening around that. And, and there's a lot more, a lot more efforts to help people that are seeking, you know, therapy and whatnot. So I, I tell people to do it as quickly as possible, because it, it only gets worse until some sort of intervention happens. And an intervention doesn't have to be shipping someone off. An intervention is taking someone to see a therapist, you know, step one, right? Yeah, or even step even before that. I mean, I would think just even having a conversation with the Very person. true. Like, Look, yeah. we know what's going on. We see this, what's happening. For Jameson, it had to get much worse before he ended up in rehab. A night of drinking ended with an arrest for public intoxication. He has no memory of the night. He was blacked out for the majority of it. But hospital records, the arrest report, and his parents' memories filled in the blanks. I went to the drunk tank. You know, luckily the, the charges, everything ended up getting dropped. You know, I, I didn't have any actual real legal trouble from that um, other than the humiliation. Um, and shame, uh, mainly the shame from my parents picked me up the next morning. Um, and I get in the car um, and I've got... You know, so I, I, I busted my head open. I go to the hospital and, and I look in the mirror after they pick me up. And, you know, one, my eye is swollen shut and, you know, black. Um, and I've got, you know, stitches, you know, uh, over that eye. And then, you know, my face is covered in, in red blood and yellow iodine, you know, all the way down my neck. The shirt that someone gave me is not only inside out, but backwards. So I've got this polo shirt with the collar in the front and the tag right there on my chest. And it's covered in blood and iodine. So, you know, from my parents' perspective, you've got a, a kid who four years before that, you know, graduated number one in their class, was going to, you know, a fantastic school, was well on their way to being a successful student and who knows what career and all that kind of stuff. And here they are picking him up and, you know, just the physical rep representation of the way I looked at that point in time, you know, I had a lot of guilt and shame around that, but I didn't have a way to talk about that, I guess, or express that. So a couple months later, I would end up getting uh, pulled over driving while intoxicated. Um, and after that incident, finally, well, finally my attorney, <laughs> said, you know, you should, from what your son tells us, you know, he should really go see a, a psychologist. So I go see a psychologist for an assessment. Um, I tell him about half of my story. And even though I only told him about half of this. When you say half of the story, do you mean half of what you're actually ingesting or half of what's been going on? Uh, both, both. You know, I, I relatively minimize stuff, but I also, I think looking back, you know, saw a bit of a lifeline 
here. Um, I was in, I was in really bad shape. Um, you know, there were, there were nights where I would like pour my first drink and then wake up the next morning. So you don't even remember how much you were drinking, where it was coming from, what you were doing. No, no. And my, my, you know, my friends would, you know, resort to cold showers to try and wake me up and like, you know, dangerous stuff. Like I'm, I'm, I'm grateful, lucky and blessed to be alive today. That's, that's for sure. I definitely am very grateful for that. And so after I told this guy about half of my shit, um, you know, he said, can I say shit? He said, um, he said, uh, you know, call, told me, probably called my parents in and, and said, you know, Jameson has uh, three options in his, in his life. You know, the, the first option is that he, you know, keep doing what he's doing um, and, you know, and die. You know, he keeps doing what he's doing and, you know, he drives and he kills someone else and then he's in jail for a really long time. And the third option is that he, he goes to treatment. I was like, wow, that's a, thanks doc. Um, so this is an, this is a poignant moment in my life. We, we walk outside and my dad had come to meet us in his, from downtown, from his office in his full suit and tie and all that. And my mom drove me over. So we go out to the parking lot to, you know, my dad and mom are parked in the parking lot and I'm going to get in my mom's car. My dad's going to go back to the office and, you know, my dad, we're standing there and my dad's like, so what are you going to do? You know, like, and, you know, now it's time to act, you know, that's <laughs> decision time, right? Decision now. time. Yeah, exactly. Like, and so I'm um, like, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? What am I going to do? Like my life's over, you know? And so, um, how old are you at this point? You said 19, I'm, I'm 18. I'm 18. 18. Yeah. So he's like, what are you going to do? And I said, um, what do you mean? And he said, well, you heard the guy, right? You have three options. Which one are you going to pick? <laughs> you know? And I'm like, yeah. in his way, I was like, well, if I only have to pick three of, of those, if those are my only three options, then, um, then I'll take option three. And, uh, and he's like, are you sure? And I was like, absolutely. Um, and that was the first time I ever saw my dad cry in my entire life. The first time his father ever showed emotion. This man who had spent his entire life caring only about points on a scoreboard, about performance and numbers and achievements, The first time he breaks is when there is an admission that his son is an addict and needs rehab, that something is broken in his family. Yeah, my son is fucked up. Um, But yeah, majorly, right? So after, you know, I mentioned the, obviously the visual representation of the time they picked me up after the public intoxication incident, you know, and now facing a, a driving, you know, a DUI charge and, you know, and so, um, so, you know, everything kind of moved relatively quickly. And the next thing I know, I was in Minnesota in January. It was very cold and I was in a program and, you know, I spent half my time trying to get out and the other half, you know, paying attention and reading and participating. I turned 19 in treatment there. Um, that, was a, that was a great birthday. First time in treatment is always a bit of a shock because you're always in there. You know, no matter where you go, you're in there with people that have been there you know, more times than you. Evidence shows the average person goes to treatment seven times. Jameson would go through rehab several times himself, and it was at one program in Washington State, a program he would later buy, where he begins to find his purpose in life. One interesting thing that happened at that, that, that program in Washington State was that I, I really enjoyed my time there, um, and I really, I mean, I, I had it set up as well as any 19 year old could in that I got a, I loved golf. As I mentioned earlier, I got a job at the local golf course. I would wake up before everybody else. It's probably at work at like 6am and I would, you know, do everything that the golf course needed. Um, and then I would be finished by about noon and I would eat lunch and I would go play golf, um, 18 or 27 holes a day. Pretty good lifestyle. I have to say after I'd been there a few months, I, I really started helping the new guys out and really, you know, at some point in time, someone told me, which is stuck with me forever is that the most selfish thing you can do is help another human being. This is a great philosophy right here. The most selfish thing you can do is help another human being. This speaks to two of our sacred seven core values, duty and love. Jameson explains. 
the most selfish thing you can do is help someone else. And so, you know, when you break that down, you know, the fact is that actually when you are helping someone else, you're actually kind of filling your own cup. But if you do that enough, you know, you start to realize that, you know what I mean? I mean, you may try it once, go volunteer, you know, you feel good helping people out, but if you make it your life's purpose, you sleep really, 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 really well at night, right? And so I started to put that into action, which meant in where I was, given my circumstances, one was being the best employee I could, but then back at the, the, the facility was helping out the new guys that walked in, make them feel comfortable. Because I mean, anytime you walk into a new place, no matter where you are, especially in treatment, you know, you're deer in the headlights, there's a lot of things going on, there's clicks and relationships that are already existing, you're the new guy on the block, all male facilities, so you got egos and all that shit going on. And so, you know, I, I just became that kind of guy that would, would take the new kid under my wing, you know, not overly so, but just enough to be like, hey, dude, you know, here's this, here's that, you know, here's some of the personalities and let me know if you need any help. So I remember one night sitting at dinner, you know, there were about 20 guys, maybe, you know, 18 guys in this program all together. And we, we'd eat at these two, two tables, you know, probably eight or nine guys at a table. And I remember one time, one of these new, one of these new guys, he, he looked over me after dinner. We typically play cards after dinner. And remember after dinner, he looks over and he's like, Hey, Jameson. Yeah. He's like, um, do you ever go home? It's like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you work a lot. And I was like, I don't work here, man. I'm here just like you, you know? <laughs> oh, wow. So he thought you were actually part of the... He thought I worked there. Yeah, he thought I worked there. And so um, I tell that story just as an illustration of how much I really enjoyed helping people. Um, and so much so that a kid thought I worked there. Um, <laughs> Has this been something that was going on even before? Or this was the very first time you realized, hey, this is kind of my purpose. This is what I really love. Oh, this, this is the passion. This I want to help other people. This is the first time I realized I had a passion for helping other people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, before that, I was oblivious to, to any, any signs like that. I asked Jameson if this was the beginning of him going from being an addict to recovering and moving into the next phase of his life. His answer surprised me. No, not at all. Um, I would leave there, go back to Texas, you know, about a month after getting home, would go to a concert, um, a Grateful Dead cover band, and smoke some pot. And then, you know, a couple of days later, get some beers. And um, I was right back off of the races. And so, so without going into a lot of that details, but I would, I, then I would enroll in an outpatient program to try and try and get my shit together. That didn't do so well. Another outpatient program ended up making my way back to Austin and back in the University of Texas after attending school from Houston for a little bit. But kind of would go to AA meetings and 12-step meetings and, you know, you know, would get a month, two months, six months, probably one time at the most, and just could never really kind of get over that hump. But what was causing you to go back? I mean, was, you know, we talked earlier, was the anxiety and depression, was that still there? Right. Still the underlying or was it just like a sense of, I can do this, I'm fine, I can have a couple of drinks? That's exactly where I was going is that, I mean, it, it was, yes, it, it, it was the second mentality you mentioned, but it really, what it really was, was the unresolved anxiety and depression that were a result of all the early childhood trauma in my life. There were some specific things in my childhood that stick out, you know, physical abuse, emotional abuse, you know, that, that stick out in my life that, that, you know, I've been able to go back and process now. But what I'm saying is that of all the treatment that I got up until that point in time, and now I'm in my early 20s, never addressed that. You know, it was, the treatment was, here's the big book, go to AA meetings and stay sober. And that works for some people. You know, I think it works for maybe 20% of people. It didn't work for me. Brings up that classic line about painting over rust. Exactly. You're, I love that analogy. There's a, there's a, a doctor, Dr. Gabor Mate. Um, I love the way he puts it is that in a medical sense, it's like if a patient has pneumonia and you just keep giving them cough suppressants, right? You're going to mitigate the symptoms, but you're not going to actually cure the cause of the issue um, until you go inside. And that's why I like that because you go inside and you dig up 
the early childhood trauma, you figure out the anxiety, the depression, and then you use the clinical tools and the therapy tools that are used to treat those underlying causal issues. Those underlying issues caught up with Jameson's brother now as well. Experimenting with drugs on his own, his brother took LSD and had a psychotic break. While in the hospital, he tried to kill himself. Looking at the issues both sons are going through, Jameson's parents finally seek help for themselves. His father especially showed incredible courage in looking at his part in his son's issues. And you've got kind of these glimpses into potential realizations by my parents about, you know, how messed up their kids are. My dad actually goes to see a therapist. Oh, I don't, at this point. I mean, that's amazing. If, you know, typically older men won't do that, right? There's still that mentality of, no, no, I've got this. I can fix this myself. Yeah, so, yeah. So, he, so he's in his late 50s. And, you know, the way he explains it is very black and white. You know, his kids are messed up. And so he needs to go figure out how he can fix them. <laughs> That's why he goes to see the therapist. So it's not about him at this point. No, right? no, 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 no. That was not his motivation. Not his motivation. Nonetheless, which interestingly enough, side note, the outcomes of treatment are not contingent upon the motivation to enter treatment. You see the same results of those that are forced into treatment than those who go willing. Fascinating stat. That is a fascinating um, stat. My father falls into arguably the second half, being forced in by his kids being crazy, and uh, luckily lands on the sofa of a very good therapist who says, I don't care about your kids, let's talk about you. In <laughs> their first session. And so that starts a path of my father realizing the reason why he acts the way he does, the reason why his kids probably act the way they do, looking at all these multi-generational roles, uh, family systems, and all sorts of stuff. So he kind of gets his own education and from his point of view realizes he's an extremely unhappy man and that he hasn't been happy in his marriage for 32 years. So my parents end up splitting up while my brother's in treatment and, um, and, and for the better. Um, they've both been very much happier since then. So that's where kind of you get my dad starts to take a little bit of agency, you know, over this um, through, through his therapist. And so, you know, a couple years later, that leads to us having a very strong conversation in that, you know, more or less, you know, if, if Jamison, if you don't get your shit together, you're, you're kind of cut out, you know, of, you know, whether that's emotionally, financially, from my life, you know, like you, you've got all the chances in the world and I will give you one more chance. That's it. One more chance. And if you don't take it or it doesn't work, then, you know, Godspeed kind of thing, you know? And so luckily my prefrontal cortex has developed enough to realize that, you know, I, I wanted to give it one more earnest shot. Again, this takes a lot of courage on the part of Jameson's father, for both his parents, really, to realize they'd be happier apart and for actually splitting. But his father's tough love, the love and duty to his son, to give him that ultimatum, to take away the safety net and make him stand on his own two feet, finally forces Jameson to make the decision to turn his life around. And he said, you can go wherever you want. And so I, I took agency over this and did a bunch of research and, you know, started, there was some stuff, you know, now this was 13, 14 years ago, there was stuff emerging about kind of underlying issues, you know, and, and obviously previously to that, if you had a substance use disorder, the treatment was 12 steps. There were more holistic places coming about, you know, found a place that, um, that had that kind of treat the underlying issues mentality and, and went there. And what was great there was that, you know, I had a team of licensed clinicians and therapists that more or less kind of, you know, we don't really care about your drug and alcohol use. Like that's great and all, but that's just a symptom of an underlying issue. So let's talk about your childhood and your trauma and your depression and what drive, what drives you. Right. And so I was able to, they weren't just doing the whole, you know, Hey, stop drinking. It was really, let's get deep in there and, and see, you know, what the root issues are. Exactly. And so I really went through trauma treatment and treatment for depression, anxiety. That's where, 
that's where I learned to meditate um, for real. You know, every morning um, we'd get up and meditate and we do yoga and stuff during the day as well. But really what stuck with me for 14 years now is the meditation part. And, and when I get away from the meditation part, because um, you have another kid and you don't get sleep and life happens, yada, yada, that's when I feel that anxiety start to creep back up. And, and, you know, when I get back into a practice of meditation on a daily basis, it dissipates. You're going to hear Jameson talk about meditation a lot and how it helped him. Meditation is a very powerful tool, and it's something that I do daily as well, as do the men of the round table. If you want to know about my meditation and what we do, you can message me on Facebook or Instagram, and I'll point you in the right direction. For Jameson, he is now delving deeply into self-honesty to uncover the root of his addictions, and he is committed to his healing and moving forward. I did a lot of early, you know, inner child work, early childhood trauma work, multiple different modalities. And then the, any need to self-medicate went away. Um, I, I, I did end up going to meetings and meeting a bunch of great people and making a bunch of friends because as a, as a 20, oh yeah, by the way. So remember I turned 19 in my first treatment, I turned 25 in my last treatment center. So, um, on that birthday, <laughs> I was like, all right, when you spend two birthdays in treatment, um, you know, I've met people that have spent more than that, but, you know, two was enough for me. You know, I had that kind of service mentality, you know, returned back through the, you know, the self-introspection, through the meditation, through the trauma work, you know, really got to who the core of Jameson, you know, is core of who I am, you know, and, and some of that was just through simple CBT of, you know, self-perception and where I want to be and, you know, that kind of stuff. And so did some, had some fantastic therapists and ultimately realized that I wanted to help people. At this point, helping people means becoming a doctor. Jameson's made the decision to go back to school and become a psychiatrist. That is until he gets some very wise advice from a mentor that saves him from making a costly mistake. This is the reason it's so important to not only find good mentors, but to listen to them as well. Here's what Jameson's told him. I started looking at post-bac pre-med programs at UCLA and USC, and um, a, my, my sponsor, you know, was like, okay, what are you doing with your life now? You know, I tell him, and he's like, you don't want to be a doctor. And, um, <laughs> and I know, I'd gotten to know this guy over the course of a few months, I guess, and so he knew me pretty well. And you know, and so, you know, you don't want to be a doctor, you know, and I don't, it, it was, it was a lot of back and forth, but as we know, you know, being a doctor is great and wonderful and there's some awesome doctors out there. The healthcare system is not necessarily as conducive to being a doctor because you've got to abide by all of, you know, the payer's expectations and do it by their book instead of, you know, what may be best for the patient. Anyways, there's a lot of that going on, but anyways, there was a back and forth and so, you know, I want to be a doctor and this guy said, no, you don't want to be a doctor. I said, yeah, I want to be a doctor. You know, I, I wanted to be a doctor when I was a kid. I can, you know, I got to go back to school. I can do the education part. I'm dedicated enough to the residency, you know, and, and to do that, right. I still had to take, you know, some science classes as, you know, before I took the MCATs, before I went to medical school, before I did my residency, you know what I mean? I had a, a years, ten, and years of stuff to catch up on. I had a 10 to 12 year path ahead of me, right? You know, and uh, we would not be having this conversation if I went down that path. So anyways, he said, you don't want to be a doctor. He's like, you know, if you really want to help people, what you want to do is you want to hire doctors. Oh, that's interesting. That's a, that's a really powerful way to look at it, right? Right. Exactly. Cause you can, and and so I, I, I agreed with him pretty quickly. It took me about 15 seconds to see the whole picture and because, and, and what, what, I saw was being able to yeah create the spaces and influence the environment and the process and, and all that and find like-minded doctors to join you in, in, in the effort. And so what's crazy is that I didn't go back to school. Um, I found the first job that I could at a treatment facility and, and being with my experience and where I was in my own recovery, it was the overnight shift. It was the graveyard shift at a, at a facility in uh, Laguna Beach, California. And so, yeah, I started, you know, at the, at the bottom, if you will. And a few months later, I was the afternoon manager of the place of a 52 bed facility. Arguably someone with my resume should not have been handed those keys. Uh, and, and I, I was a testament for how hard you were working, what you were doing. 
you know, you, you know, at that point, right? Uh, yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. I was working my butt off. I mean, I didn't have anything else in life except for that. Now, you know, I was fully focused and dedicated and then, and it kind of went back to my dad and my grandfather of, I really, you know, I was doing it all in, there was nothing else in the world. You know what I mean? Um, and you got so, you get some positive out of that from dad and grandpa, right? You got I, oh, I mean, and, and that's why I, 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 I definitely do not want to send any message that, you know, hard work or dedication or any of that is, is not a good thing. It's a, it's a great thing to have when it's obviously unbalanced and it's, you know, 99% of your life and there's no room for anything else. It just leads to unhappiness and burnout and all that kind of stuff. Right. So, but it's definitely created some amazing things in my own life as well as in many others lives. So now Jameson is on purpose. He's made the commitment. He's taking a shot. He's believing in himself now. And he's doing what needs to be done. He directs this into the courage to ask for help, to contact important people he knows can help him succeed. So took that experience and then, you know, left there to partner up with another guy. um, And we opened a treatment facility. And and that's when I was really sleeping in my office. Um, (laughs) So all this is kind of happening. But at the same time, what I'm doing while I'm working in these places is I'm I'm researching and I'm reading just ferociously. I mean, from, you know, books, but also like, you know, the NIH annals of the research of NIH, you know, and calling, you know, doctors here and, you know, Stanford and, and NIDA and, you know, emailing people and people are actually getting back to me and I'm saying, you know, what do you think about this therapy and this therapy and why does this work? And, you know, you did this, you did this great test, you know, did this great study and it worked very well. And where is it being implemented and why isn't it being implemented? And what's funny is the researchers, you know, tell you, well, that's not our job. (laughs) Our job is to do more research. You know, that's why every time you get to the end of the research paper and it says the research suggests there needs to be more research. Um, (laughs) Even though the data shows it was effective. Anyway, so what I was doing was building a thesis around the fact that we need much more treatment on the kind of call it mental health or psychiatric side of things um, or call it the underlying causal issues than, than on the symptoms. You know what I mean? Because we can mitigate symptoms all day through different modalities and through different efforts. Um, but until we heal the underlying causal issues, we're not going to have long-term sustainable healing and recovery, right? And so I was, was lucky enough. At the time when you were doing that, when was that something that just wasn't uh, happening? Did you get resistance pushed back on that? I, I did, absolutely. Because people thought I was anti-AA and anti-tradition and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, I'm not anti-anything. I'm just saying... I'm looking at what worked for me and now in all my research, looking at what has worked for so many other people and where existing modalities fall short. When you have belief in yourself, even in the face of established people telling you you are wrong, trying to twist your words, you can stand on the truth, stand on principle and purpose. Jameson was coming from experience and he had to go through what he experienced in his life to get to where he is now. All of that challenge gave him a greater sense of purpose and a greater foundation of belief and truth to stand on. 20 years ago, 15 years ago, there were, there were a couple of these places maybe that exist, maybe one or two that existed, but they were for adults, right? And they were for people with means and all that kind of stuff. And so there was nothing. And then, so that goes back to kind of like, you know, I don't wish, but you know, it's like, what if someone would have intervened sooner in my life? Would I not have caused as much damage and, you know, crap, you know, through, you know, cause as I could have gotten off that conveyor belt 10 years before I actually did, you know what well, I mean? Yeah, but there's another side of that too, which is if you hadn't gone through that, would you be as effective? We wouldn't be talking right? today. Yeah, exactly. So that's not what, that's right. Yeah. I'm, 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 that's what I'm saying. I don't wish that things were different, but I'm saying now that we know, we know, can we help other people from going through? Cause as I said, like, I mean, there were a hundred times or more that I could have died and I didn't. So, you know, that's a big motivator for me too, is that like, you know, there's a higher power, there's a higher force out there when I look at my life that somehow I was able to survive when so many people weren't. And that that kind of drives me to, to do what I do now. And so I ended up through these folks that I was talking to, you know, meeting 
Dr. David Smith, who founded the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic back in 67, and told him my thoughts. And he agreed 100% and was on board whatever I needed. You know, I met a, uh, the woman who's still the chief clinical officer of Newport Academy today, Dr. Barbara Nozal, who's a psychologist who worked in the field for 15, 20 years. And they both got on board with some, you know, 20-some-year-old kid that had an idea. Um, and we opened up a very small treatment facility in Orange County, California, with the idea that we were going to treat teenagers and families in Southern California. And, you know, with, with this model of treating the underlying issues that really focus on the primary mental health stuff and everything else we would deal with, but the primary focus would be the, the trauma and the depression and the anxiety and other, other mental health stuff. And what happened was that our third patient came from Philadelphia, our fifth patient came from New York. And, you know, and then, and this is, we opened, we admitted our first patient in 2009. A few years later, we only had 12 residential beds in a small outpatient facility, so it was very small. But, you know, a third of our kids may have been from East Mississippi at any given time. Um, and so what we were doing resonated with a lot of folks, and it was effective. You know, five out of our first six kids at Newport Academy we're still in touch with today, and they're doing very well, and they're alive, which is awesome. Wow. Um, and so we just had over 250 people at our East Coast alumni reunion. I think 280 was the final tally, somewhere close to there. It's, uh, it's amazing to see what's happened. And so what happened was that, you know, I ended up moving to the East Coast to take the treatment facility there and so on and so on. And, you know, now we're in six or seven states and, and still with that core mission of doing, uh, doing the work that needs to be done, identifying the underlying causal issues and healing those. Jameson's personal journey has led the direction of countless other people's journeys, but his journey isn't over yet. We talked about where he is, where he's still going, and then got into a deep discussion of our sacred seven core values and what they mean to him, starting with honesty. Just because I did this and I started this company and all that kind of stuff doesn't mean that I had life figured out <laughs> at all. You know what I mean? Um, like I said, I was just sleeping in my office. And so that's not, that's not healthy. Um, and so, you know, I probably didn't, you know, feel like I was standing on my own two feet really until, um, you know, with a foundation until I was probably, you know, 33 or 34 years old. I'm, I'm 38 now. And so. Um, and that was what, 14 years into having this company? No, no we're, we're, we're 12 years into the company now. And so um, it was 12 years into having a company and it was, uh, now we are, um, but it was almost, it was almost, eight or it was nine years after finding recovery um, is what it was. And so, yeah, I mean, there, there's a couple, uh, you know, instances that, that come up and, and I would say, you know, one is, and I looked at some of the, the, the values um, of, of your, of your podcast. Right. And, and one of them that really stuck out was, was honesty to me. And, and that's something that actually was, was really my dad attempted to pound into me as a kid was honesty and integrity. And, and he's used that in his business for a long time and kind of that the way it was, it came. And then, then you enter in all the competition and, you know, in school, you know, my group of friends and I, you know, looking back now, probably a fourth of the school, you know, I mean, we cheated in school, you know what I mean? And like, you know, it was kind of like whatever you can do to get ahead kind of thing. And, you know, at the end of the day, you could argue you weren't hurting anybody, but you were hurting yourself, you know, but when you're that age, you don't have that insight. Jameson learned to take that honesty into relationships, finally understanding the meaning of love. He realized, just like you have to be honest with yourself before you can be honest with others, you have to love yourself first before you can love others. What's interesting is that through that deep meditation experience, you know, things started becoming more clear in my life um, around the honesty and around what, you know, what love actually is. Because once again, I didn't have a model of what love was. Love was so based on the scoreboard, uh, you know, to come full, kind of full circle and started understanding this concept of which was through the meditation, which is, you know, it may sound cliche, but it's the truth, which is that you know, that first relationship is with yourself, right? And so what the meditation was, was self-care um, and self-awareness, which led to action, which led to self-esteem, right? Which, right, right, positive action, right? Because you had the self-awareness. And then when you actually take the step, um, it comes back to self-affirming behavior and positive, you know, self-esteem. 
Um, and so it's all about you. I mean, basically that's what you're saying. I mean, that's what I found too. It's, it's about you before anyone else. Exactly. Yeah, and, that, and that's what I'm kind of saying that, yeah, the, the trying to break down the cliche, which is like, you know, and then, and then the, the unconditional love of self, despite all the shit that I had done in my life, I'm here now, this is a new day. And that's, what's great about starting your day with meditation is that you can, you start over every day. You know what I mean? And so I was able to start over every day and, and take right action. Jameson finally found love. He got married and now has two children. And he brought up an important lesson he learned from his own parents. Been married for a few years now, have two beautiful young kids, um, and live a life of honesty and integrity and unconditional love. And, you know, she's my partner and it's, it's, it's awesome, man. And so, you know, having gone through all the shit that I went through to get to where I am now, you know, I'm very grateful for the path that I went down and all the people that I led down that with me. And, and what's great to kind of come for a circle also about my parents um, is that they never gave up on me. They never gave up. You know, who knows if that ultimatum of the last chance was actually my last chance. But, uh, but they really never gave up. Despite all the shit that I put them through, they never gave up. So even though his parents' initial choices when he was young were not ideal and he and his brother experienced deep emotional issues, he still took away value he can use with his own children. And that's also the value of not letting yourself be a victim by looking for the lessons you can use from the experiences you've had. Jameson and I talked more about the core values, going deeper into the importance of love and commitment for men, how they are anchors in our lives. You know, looking at, at some of the stuff you'd send, those words kind of honesty and then love, you know, unconditional love um, of self um, and then of, of those around you is, is kind of what, what came to mind. Sure. And that love is, is um, you know, love's an amazing thing. We, we, we had it on that list when, when we first were putting it together. There's a group of us that put that together. And when I first saw that love was being added to the list, I was like, well, you know, this is kind of a masculine thing here, right? We've got honesty, <laughs> integrity, courage, commitment, duty, honor, and then you put love. And then it, but when you really look at it, like love is the strongest, most powerful, most devastating emotion we have. I mean, it is literally what will make a man jump through fire for his family. It's what will, you know, people will endure incredible amounts of stuff because of love. Yeah. So it's just such the most powerful thing on there. And I don't know if you look at that list that I sent you. So you've got courage, honesty, integrity, commitment, duty, honor, and love. The first three are about yourself. Gotcha. Self-courage, self-honesty, right? And integrity with yourself. The commitment becomes that turning point where it becomes from you to other people. So now you're committed to whatever it is you're committed to. And that's where duty, honor, and love are for others. Well, the commitment is, is the whole, is, yeah, is that turning point. And that's really, yeah, that's the anchor. Sometimes commitment kind of scared me because commitment to me always seemed like the whole enchilada as opposed to just taking a bite. You know what I mean? And sometimes commitment can just be a taste. Um, you know, it's a commitment to try something, to, to be vulnerable, to go out on a limb, to try a new behavior and, and see if it, if it fits, you know, and so. Yeah. Commitment's everything. I mean, if you're yeah. not committed to anything, you're, you're never, nothing's going to get done. You, you basically have nothing if you're not committed. Here's what I realized in that deep meditation that led me, you know, to commit to, to my wife, Heather, which was that this theme kept popping up, whether I was reading something, listening to something, or even in my own meditation. And, and I, I was, I, as you know, an Aquarius, whatever that means, but I'm very much a free spirit, right? And so for me, freedom has always been a big thing and anything I, any, and so I've always had issues with authority and all sorts of stuff because, you know, I'm a, I'm, I want my freedom, right? And to me, that looked like no connection, right? No ties, you know what I mean? Um, no commitment, no commitment actually. And so this theme that kept popping up for me was, and it was so weird and so antithetical at the time is that commitment leads to freedom. Mm. Commitment. Yeah, I feel that freedom. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm more a less a younger, less mature version of myself. Not believe that statement. 
Uh, but as I started to explore with it and play with it a little bit, you know, it, it started to become so much clear, more clear that that actually commitment does lead to freedom and commitment to like what we're talking about here. Exactly what we've been talking about, you know, commitment to being honest, commitment to do the right thing, you know, leads to so much far more freedom than, than the opposite. Because when you're not committed, yeah, exactly, you have nothing. Um, and you are literally floating in the wind and not not in a, you know. Yeah, it's not a positive way, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Not, the, the image it brings up for me is more like, you know, it's like a plastic grocery bag in the wind. Just yeah, exactly. blown around wherever, yeah. you know, whatever it takes you. Not a, not a, not a traveling Instagram blogger, you know, <laughs> getting paid to travel to all these fun places, you know, but you know, it, it's, um, yeah, it's the paper bag or the plastic bag floating down the highway getting hit by all the cars, you know, and <laughs> barely hanging on. Um, those were huge, that, those are huge words, um, and a huge turning point that, that commitment leads to freedom and it's commitment to the work commitment to the daily practice. For me, it's a meditation. And if I commit to that um, and a few other things, then, then everything else falls in place. Yeah. It's, it's so powerful. Commitment is so powerful. I mean, I, for myself, I think I had a similar experience to you. I wouldn't commit to anything either. Yeah. Because I, I had the exact same feeling. Commitment is chains. Commitment is shackles. Yeah. Commitment is, well, I already committed to doing that, so now I can't do this. Right. Yeah, so exactly. One exactly. or the other. It always, for me, a commitment meant it was binary. It was one or the other. Some FOMO yeah. in there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, but it's both, right? You can have, you can have anything when you're committed. Yeah. When you're exactly. truly committed to whatever it is that drives you, your purpose, your love, your passions, everything else lines up. Yeah, exactly. One of the unique things Jameson does at his centers is giving out books to read and suggesting movies to watch. I asked him where that came from, and he told me he is all about people having an experience over just teaching and giving people lessons. And he also told me about the power of simply trying something for a few days. The best way to learn something is to experience. And so what we really try and do is have kids experience things. And so it's like trying that on, you know, trying a mentality, trying an attitude, trying a belief system. Um, and seeing how that works for you. And what's great about the safe environment at Newport Academy is that you can try something for a few days and you don't have to take it with you if you don't want to when you leave, you know what I mean? But you can try it for a few days, a few weeks even, or a few months um, if you really like it. And then at the same time, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of other experiences such as, you know, not, not just practicing these, you know, mentalities or attitudes, beliefs, whatever you want, uh, but also, you know, music and yoga art and nature and hiking and all that kind of stuff so so it's full on it's not just sitting in classrooms don't drink don't do drugs it's a whole thing yeah i mean i'm not even saying don't drink or don't do drugs <laughs> really okay so it gets it's more experience it's more tell me I about mean, you probably shouldn't but i want you to come to that realization on your own you know what i mean personal power personal uh well integrity we talked about it integrity with yourself Exactly. Exactly. Because if you don't come to that conclusion on your own, then it doesn't really work. It's just a Band-Aid, you know, for a short period of time. And so we really want to do the profound work to where a, a young man or a young woman is going to end up loving themselves enough that they don't want to harm themselves. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And it's why love is the final core value in our sacred seven core values. It's the anchor of them all, the most devastating of all. The lack of self-love is what drives us to do horrific things to ourselves. Without love, without self-love and love for others, life is a dark existence. Now, I'm taking away a couple other things from Jameson's story as well. First is the power of experience and how important it is to own and embrace everything in your life, both good and bad, as an integral part of your journey, as part of what makes you who you are, even if it doesn't seem like it at the time. I know looking back now at my own life, how some of my worst failures, my biggest disappointments, some of the most embarrassing shit that went absolutely wrong is how that has led me to where I am right now. I see the perfection in that. And there's a courage that goes along with that. You know, it can be painful to the ego to own our failures. Someone told me recently that every man is a self-made man, but only the successful ones admit it. That is a powerfully true statement. 
we tend to hide our failures to disown them. But when you can have the courage to own all your shit, as both Jameson and his father did, the results are spectacular, right? The growth gets exponentially bigger and faster. So now I want to know what you got out of Jameson's story. Does it inspire you to own your own story, to own the shit that you did in your life, to own your past journey down what you thought was the wrong path? Are you committed to love more? Are you committed to find your purpose? Let me know, guys. You can find me on social media. The links are on the website, wlkhpodcast.com. Just click on them, go down, leave a comment. I promise I'll answer. Also, remember, if you're on Apple Podcasts, rate us and leave a review and a comment. And most importantly, make sure to share this show with three men you know will get value from it. Three men whose lives could change for the better because of it. Might be a man you know is struggling with some of his own addictions, and just listening to this could get him the help that he needs. So please pass it on. And I want to thank Jameson Moreau for joining us today. I want to thank him for not holding back anything, for being real and honest about his life and about the story of his journey to modern manhood. I'm going to have links to the Newport Academy on the website on WLKHpodcast.com so you can get more information of the work they're doing there. And I want to thank you for listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes today. I'm Eric Rogel, and I'm honored to be with you to be your brother on your hero's journey. I'll talk to you next week. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. <laughs> <laughs> no. Right.